Well, I've seen every episode of Libya Matters, um, and and last year I was in I was in one of those bad episodes of being an activist um, mentally, and I think it was the only piece of Libya that I could have endured to hear um, about in in terms of conversation. I mean, I wouldn't have anything turned on, but I would sit and listen to Libya Matters conversations around difficult topics without polarization. And without having to defend yourself and justify words and sentences, it's very rare. Misinformation, fake news, silos. These are terms we hear a lot when we speak about media today, and definitely when we speak about coverage of Libya. In fact, it's the reason why we started Libya Matters in the first place. In a conflict setting, these challenges become a matter of life and death, and so how to navigate them becomes even more important. In this episode, we try to make sense of it all. To help us through it all, we are joined by Ahmed Gtinish, co-founder of the Kowakbi Foundation, an accelerator for thinkers and doers focused on the future of liberty in Arab and Muslim societies. The host of the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast and co-author of the Middle East Crisis Factory, coming out in March 2021. Maybe by the end of this episode, we will learn how to fight off the Twitter bot armies. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, Ilham. How are you doing today? I'm good. I say that cautiously because I'm a little anxious about today's topic. It's one of those that I think I want to discuss until I do. Yeah, I get what you mean. Um, I'm, of course, aware of the fact that so much news out there is fake and that the disinformation around Libya uh, has become so prevalent, particularly um, we see in, in the recent years and around the conflict that began in April uh, last year, 2019, um, where social media has just become so divided as well. Yeah. So in, in this week's episode, we're going to try and get behind the scenes of these news outlets and the social media platforms to figure out the who, the what, and I guess most importantly, the why that happens behind these. And we may unveil some ugly truths, but I think it is important. Um, actually, I have a question for you. Where do you get your news? Hmm. I, I do go to Twitter. A lot to say, I have to say. I mean, besides the little pop-ups that I get, you know, the breaking news from the BBC and, and others, um, uh, yeah, I, I go to Twitter. But in all fairness, I, I do filter. Okay, that's that's fair. So, I mean, obviously, you go in with that kind of uh, critical eye and take things with a grain of salt. What about you, Enham? Oh, gosh. I always feel that if I ask a question, I don't expect it to be asked back to me. Um, you know what I find? I find that the news finds me. <laughs> You know, I'm peacefully sitting there minding my own business and then all of a sudden I get a million forwards or uh, sort of screenshots of, of news stories and and I feel like I can't escape it. But if I were to go find news or to actively pursue it, um, I think I go to my safe silos. Um, so I'll find myself probably on for, for kind of uh, English language news on The, on the Guardian or, or The New York Times uh, for Libya specific stuff. Yeah, I... Um, <laughs> I only discovered, well, I only joined Twitter in the last year, but I, I do go there. But again, there I still just go to like three or four people. So I don't, I'm not sure I'm really getting news. I'm just reaffirming my perceptions. Gosh, okay. Shall we find out if we're doing the right thing here? I feel like we're going to be told off um, <laughs> for doing that. <laughs> let's, let's, find, let's find out. Let's do that. And so um, our guest today will definitely let us know. So we are joined today by Ahmed Qtunish 
co-founder and head of operations of the Coacabi Foundation, an accelerator for thinkers and doers with a focus on the future of liberty in the Muslim communities and in the Arab world. He's also a fellow podcaster hosting the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast and is co-author of the Middle East Crisis Factory coming out in November this year. Very excited about that one. So welcome to Libya Matters, Ahmed. How did we do? How reliable are the sources we named? Thank you. I see everything on a spectrum, so uh, nothing is 100% reliable. Uh, and of course, even well-intentioned and competent people make mistakes. Um, but normally you can't go too badly wrong with established uh, major international outlets unless they have some kind of systematic bias, which, as I'm sure you know, does happen with Libya coverage uh, not infrequently. Oh, I, I got excited there. I thought, oh, he's saying my reference to The Guardian, The New York Times is good, and then you just brought me back back down again. <laughs> but yeah, it is it is a real crisis in Libya and in the rest of the region, or, well, name a region in the world which isn't suffering from this at the moment. Um, and we're still, as a human race, trying to approach information and news with a, a 20th century mindset when uh, 21st century technologies have made that completely obsolete. Oh, gosh, that seems like we got deep really quickly. So perhaps we'll pause, take a step back. Um, I know that you've identified in, in some of the, your writing that the main sort of sources for information in Libya that people rely on are Facebook and satellite television. Um, can you talk us a little bit through that media landscape and, you know, like I, like I suggested in the introduction, to, to, to break down the W's, the what, who, why, um, just so that we can understand a little bit of what that really looks like? Yeah, I don't think it's possible to discuss this um, as it is today without going back to the historical context. So for many decades, Libyans had uh, a near information vacuum and we had one single source of information, which was uh, state media. Um, maybe there were a few uh, more independent newspapers, although they were also subject to censorship. But there was a state-controlled radio and a state-controlled single television station, which I'm sure you are both familiar with, the Jemahiriya, uh, which is still somehow broadcasting today. Um, and then, uh, you know, after the satellite TV explosion of the 90s, uh, Libyans got access to more regional international media. But, uh, you know, there were attempts at blocking it, and often their focus wasn't on domestic affairs so you could find out what's happening in the rest of the world but for what's happening in Libya you still only have the one state-run state-sanctioned media source and then after 2011 when that control was gone uh, there was an explosion of new sources of information so many people became citizen journalists and started to report on the news of their local communities report on the military conflict report on you know social events and um they relied on the latest technology to do this. So uh, people set up Facebook pages, um, social media spread rapidly in the country. Uh, people began using the internet as uh, their primary uh, source of information. And there was also an explosion in uh, newspapers for a while um, before the economics brought them back down and an explosion in satellite TV channels. So there's now at least a dozen uh, Libyan satellite TV channels, some of them based inside the country, uh, others based abroad in various countries. And I'm sure we'll get to the dynamics of that um, and uh, the media landscape today is different yet the same um, because there are so many options to choose from but really they're just giving you different versions of the same old thing which is the news that somebody wants you to know and the ideas which somebody wants you to believe and and in terms of the w's because i think a, a bit of that is explaining kind of more general um, 
trends, if you like, or the, the sort of common denominator between these outlets. If we can just break that down um, a little bit into the different kinds of channels. So, you know, you suggested that it is the same concept of people wanting to get you their messaging and to kind of their propaganda, if you like. Um, but it, we have more of them. And so on, on the spectrum that you describe, um, where are we in this platform? And, and we know the Jamahiriya is still there, but what other contenders are there for propagandist of the year? Yeah, so I never know whether to actually name them. I feel like most of the time they don't deserve the dignity of being named, but also some people might need to know that for their work. But, you know, for example, there's a, a, a London-based uh, Libyan TV channel, which is uh, still streaming uh, pro-Gaddafi uh, material uh, to the country. Um, there's uh, Benghazi-based channels, which uh, are, you know, pro-Haftar uh, and the Libyan Arab armed forces. There are Western-based outlets, which uh, vary dramatically. Some of them are also um, mouthpieces for different military groups. Some of them are religion-focused. Um, there's channels based in Turkey, Jordan, uh, Qatar, um, all with... Um, and it's it's not so much who they back, it's uh, the level of reliability, because some of them are outright propagandists. Others have, you know, an aspiration to be a, a real news outlet, at least, even if they often fall short because of competence or skill or even access to information themselves. So there's there's a, a really diverse menu. And and in terms of those who who try, like you say, the kind of the F the A for effort type organizations, um, is there stuff being done to kind of bolster that capacity building or ensuring that they have the competence to get better? Because it feels like there is a little bit of hope there in that in that uh, landscape that you're painting. I haven't gone into that too much. Uh, not that I'm aware of at the moment. I'm aware that uh, some international actors, uh, embassies and uh, foreign donors have attempted to have programs supporting independent media in the past. Um, I do know that uh, some less positive actors uh, are also trying very hard. So the Russians are providing media support at the moment to certain outlets. Um, there's a lot of question marks about the funding of some of them, especially those based internationally. Um, but it doesn't look like there is a concerted effort to make the landscape better right now. It's it's definitely um, within this conversation and in line with all of that um, around the media in Libya. So ma mainly the words that we hear and I think that are most problematic is the disinformation, the misinformation, uh, fake news, as well as um, hate speech. And, and I think that many, you know, it could be through our traditional media outlets that you named, but a lot happens on social on social media as well. Right. And so um, and it has become so intensified over the years. Um, so how do we. I guess go back and, and and looking at you know the fake news, the misinformation, hate speech. How do we define those, and what is the difference between them? Um, I think hate speech is uh, quite a specific category. Um, it involves incitation. It involves uh, consequences, uh, foreseeable consequences to the speech. Um, the other stuff, misinformation, disinformation, fake news. Um, I know researchers have uh, very specific definitions for these things. Um, I try not to get caught up in them too much um, because everyone has a general sense of um, what things are negative for the public sphere, whether that's manipulation of online platforms, whether that's um, outright malicious reporting of incorrect news or mistruths in order to deceive or manipulate, or whether it's just um, 
widespread uh, lack of uh, checking sources and, and repetition of rumors and that kind of rumor mill effect. Um, they, they, they're different things and they come from different causes, but um, people tend to try to tackle them as a whole. And it's seen as being um, overall a part of the health of this um, public conversation that we all engage in every day when we go online and talk to people we know or people we don't know or we consume media and then talk about it, or we write. Um, these things all interact with each other, and uh, they tend to be interlinked as well. And I, I think because of the prevalence of it, one thing that on the lawyer side of this conversation, we get asked a lot, and probably the only question we ever get asked in this context is, how is this allowed? Um, you know, How can it be permissible or legal to just go out there and just tell lies? Um, and the answer is always really unsatisfying for the people asking us the question, because really the right to freedom of expression protects your right to lie as well as your right to tell the truth. There's absolutely no requirement that you use your freedom of expression uh, to tell the truth. And I mean, that is why Fox News thrives and, and the likes. Um, and, and I think maybe I'll take a moment to kind of put that in context. And it's because freedom of expression was born out of oppressive regimes and it was to counter that. And so the idea that you would then limit it is really problematic. Um, and probably the most, well, the most um, loose or open definition of that is in the US where even hate speech is is not illegal um, in the US. Um, and so it is, you know, which is why you can get people in the US going out on television and inciting violence or indeed the president going on Twitter and inciting violence. Um, and the, there is no legal reprimand to that. There might be social consequences, which we can pick up on or campaigning, but it is a, fun, is a fundamental right that is protected. In other jurisdictions, they take a view on hate speech differently. And, and I think that is kind of really quite a new innovation, actually. Um, and that's because the idea is you don't really want to hand over to someone to determine the truth. Uh, and that's how you can get ministries of truth or the like that we've seen in history. Um, you want people to be able to look at information and ascertain for themselves what they what they want to um, subscribe to. Um, but I guess we would let me we would not like yeah so we would not really want to see laws that give power back to state bodies to determine what is true and what is fake. So where does that leave us? Does that mean we just need to try and flood the news with real news to counter it so that on average you have a better chance of getting? Uh, real news or is it um, is it something else that can be done we've seen obviously in the in the current black lives black lives matter movement that a lot of pressure has been put on the social media platforms themselves to um, change their rules of who's allowed to say what and where and and even there we see we saw a, a very different interpretation between Facebook and Twitter on what amounts to hate speech regarding um, Trump statements. And so I, I think it would be really interesting to kind of think, okay, well, we really don't want to go to states to do this. So where do we go to kind of try to address or mitigate this damage, if you like? Yeah, there's definitely no silver bullet. And that's the biggest uh, mistake that people go into this, this looking for. Um, there's um, so many things have been attempted, but we also have to zoom out and realize that in the grand scheme of things, um, there's been such a dramatic technological shift over the past 10 or even 20 or 30 years um, that it's like if you look at for example the the invention of the printing press and the global chaos that that brought in for years there was um, a, a massive evolution required of government structures of society 
of the, the perception of duties of citizens in order to even address that. And what we have is a similar moment. Social media is uh, something which defies all of these norms that we've evolved. It's outside of the control of any particular government because it's international. Uh, never before in the past has an individual had the power to tell something to a billion people within minutes. Um, and no systems that we've developed or created in our evolution so far really give us the ability to deal with that. Um, the ability of small collectives of people to get together and produce, uh, you know, slick media and get it out there in a way that looks reliable. You know, we a lot of us still look at the media with the mentality of, uh, you know, 20 years ago it might have been accurate that, you know, this is clearly well-developed and highly funded, therefore it must be some kind of official uh, output because only official bodies really have the capacity to do that, therefore it's trusted. Whereas today, almost anyone can do that. Um, so, you know, even the mental rules that we use to test against are outdated and we're still uh, correcting them. And sometimes, you know, people in certain segments of society have realized a certain rule is wrong. Others haven't yet. And it takes time for that ripple to spread. Um, so there's, uh, there is really no silver bullet, but there are small things that we can start correcting. You mentioned flooding with real news. Um, I don't think that works, but... Um, making outlets more accountable. Uh, you know, people always have grievances, grudges, complaints about media coverage they've seen. And when they feel that those complaints are taken account of and responded to, um, that makes them less likely to go looking for uh, conspiracy theories and alternatives and things like that, for example. Um, there's media literacy and understanding what you're consuming. Uh, there's responsible use of social media. Um, there's uh, issues like funding and uh, the economics of uh, running media and the fact that today, you know, even in established Western democracies with decade-old traditions of uh, media and reporting, outlets, outlets are going bankrupt left, right, and center because they can no longer sustain themselves with the collapse of traditional advertising, which has gone online and gone to search engines. So how do you run an independent outlet without, uh, well, basically without depending on a state backer or a very rich person who wants you to push his line? Uh, it's a question that hasn't been solved yet, even in many established democracies. So on the one hand, we do look at these problems very impatiently. And we also have incredibly high expectations in the case of Libya to resolve these issues that haven't even been resolved in the UK and in Europe and the US. But on the other hand, there are lots and lots of small things that we can do to just take steps forward. Mm. Although, I mean, to push that point a little bit, I think the part of the reasons why there is restlessness in addressing this in the Libyan context is because the stakes are a lot higher with the fake news there versus the, what you would get in the UK. Um, and so I, I think that I think that's the panic, right? Because this, there's a, a not an indirect link between what is said online and what happens on the front line. Um, and I think that is, I think, where the stakes are a bit higher. And so people really feel the need to address this. And we, we get even journalists now, which is really distressing for me as a, as a human rights activist, asking us to help them draft media regulation laws for Libya. And, you know, to sit down with them and say, think long term, once these laws are on the books, they're on the books. And I can understand your panic right now to try and uh, limit the scope of what's happening, but then you're limiting the scope of what happens in the future, and you need to think of the consequences of those actions. And and it, you know it is a it's a really kind of sad circle that we've gone from 2011 when there was this you know flurry of of 
um, people attempting citizen journalism and, and trying to professionalize and trying to set up outlets to now almost saying, you know what, let's just regulate it because we, you know, we can then control what's happening. It's almost come full circle. And it's, it is, it is because of the sense of urgency that there is such vile fake media, as opposed to sometimes you might get slightly humorous fake media and, you know, that you can laugh off in a, in an established democracy. Um, but I, but I, but I like some of that, you know, I'm sort of trying to mull some of the ideas you've mentioned and actually, you know, again, kind of looking at where we are in some of these uh, democracies, you mentioned the impact of the Black Lives Movement, the Black Lives Matter movement has again showed the power that a strong movement can have on changing these narratives as well. And so you talked about funding and we've seen really big corporations, you know, pulling out their funding from Facebook until they change their um, policy on posting, um, you know, uh, insightful language or hate speech. And we're talking sort of quite big names here, the, you know, Coca-Cola, Unilever, my personal favorite, Ben & Jerry's, which um, I, f- I fully feel not guilty about buying their products anymore. Um, and so I think there is there is that kind of corporate power that's being galvanized, which I think is interesting. And I, I wonder whether there is scope to kind of elab- to sort of expand that. But then there's also these functions that are using the social media and the internet to counter this. So like fact-checking um websites or you know um what what is the one they use in the U- us which keeps track of trump's lies um i can't remember what it's called but you know th- things like that that you can go to verify information from and in libya we've seen a really great initiative by the libyan center for press freedom uh with falso i don't know if you have seen that you can hashtag any news story is falso and they pick it up uh, and they have like a live running tally on the website of fake stories in each of the main outlets um, and it's it's a really interesting because it's crowdsourced information. So there's a sense of kind of empowering people to monitor and report um, problematic speech. Um, and so to kind of be a bit positive about the changes in technology and how we can operationalize those for the purposes of, okay, we can't maybe flood with real news, but maybe we can fact check or we can kind of, you know, like, you know, any hold accountable those who say that, um, not in the traditional sense of accountability, but in a very much naming and shaming type of yeah, one of the saddest things is how our own expectations have fallen since 2011. You know, uh, there was all of this idealism about, you know, it's going to be a new age for the media and people setting up their own media organizations and becoming empowered to do their own reporting and be the change they wanted to see. Um, even though today we don't have um, direct control over many of these outlets, you know, they have private funders, they're based abroad, etc. Um, public opinion always plays a role. And how often have you heard someone say oh but they all lie to us there's nothing we can do like dismissing the clearly fake news um being peddled by these outlets when in fact if there was you know widespread rejection and outrage um they'd be forced to change their ways um whether or not they're economically dependent because uh they'd be uh rejected and made obsolete so there's there's definitely a lot that citizens can do just by being uh, more uncompromising about the standards they expect. Um, and uh, Falso is a great example of that as well, because you're insisting on um, holding up lies to the sunlight rather than letting them slide and just accepting that this is the way it is now. Yeah, I think that's very much true on, on many fronts in Libya today, right? But I want to pick up a bit more on the activity we saw uh, around social media platforms, especially Twitter, um, in the context of the armed conflict that started in Libya in April last year. What was interesting there is the increased bot activity. um, And that 
you know, I understand that some of the research on this uh, on this was done, but that a disproportionate number of the propaganda actually was coming from from outside of Libya and and Gulf states in particular, and um, and so can you walk us through that and break it down a little more? Um, I mean, this does play into the larger, you know, internationalization of our of a of a internal conflict. Yeah, so um, we've been uh, researching the usage of social media for propaganda for a few years with a focus on the Gulf mostly, and that's how we first noticed this in Libya. So we've been tracking uh, these networks of tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of Twitter accounts. Um, it exists on Facebook as well, but we mostly focus on Twitter ourselves. Um, run what, what we can only conclude by uh, the highest levels of uh, state in uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, um, smaller attempts to do the same thing in other regional countries like Egypt, uh, Israel, um, Bahrain, and uh, basically mobilizing these masses of accounts uh, to peddle outright lies or sometimes to attack specific people uh, to reduce their credibility, sometimes to drive them offline, to threaten them, to scare them. Uh, or even just to disrupt their experience so that they can no longer hold conversations which are inconvenient to uh, the authorities behind this. Um, and we noticed this uh, starting to leak into Libya. Um, it's been going on a long time, but it really escalated over the past year uh, during the war. There were, um, you know, hashtags going around supporting the the Libyan army and glorifying it and speaking about how it's going to liberate Libya. And we'd go into these accounts and find that, you know, they're festooned with the UAE flags or just a few hours previously, they've been tweeting pictures of uh, the King of Saudi Arabia and, uh, you know, news about Saudi Arabia and things like that. Like it's, it's crudely done and they don't even disguise it very well. Um, but there is definitely this attempt to make people who aren't paying attention um, think, for example, that a certain person is very popular or a certain idea is very popular or a certain group is well supported within Libya. Sometimes they attempt to use other languages like English and French um, if they're attempting to convey that impression to those outside the country. Um, and uh, it's an attempt to... So when it's not targeting Libyans, it's an attempt to corrupt uh, diplomacy and policymaking um, by misleading those in charge of it uh, into either misunderstanding the facts on the ground or misunderstanding uh, dynamics and support and popularity and things like that. Some of you, or maybe even one of you, is wondering, how can I make a difference or push things forward or achieve accountability? Well, it's really quite easy. Just two clicks away. Go to libyanjustice.org and click on donate to make a one-off donation or to give regularly. There really is no such thing as too little or too much. Your support is crucial to achieving justice in Libya. Thank you very much. But for now... Enjoy the episode. Can you can you put a success rate on that? Not really, not very easily. Uh, I could never guess how many decisions that have been made by governments behind closed doors have been influenced by online campaigns that they've seen. Uh, possibly none, possibly dozens, uh, which is why it's so insidious. Um, I mentioned that they're not always, or they're not even often very competent. Um, but the scary thing is seeing this it's very clear that their capabilities increase even month on month. And, you know, there's always an arms race going on where the platforms like Facebook and Twitter are taking down accounts and adding new policies to prevent them from doing this. 
and uh, you know making it harder to create fake accounts and then these guys are developing their methods and techniques and software to get around those restrictions and the restrictions come up a level and then the evasion comes up a level um, and the worry is you know with all of these new technologies coming along like deep fakes um, the ability to create uh, actual video uh, of uh, a, a public figure saying something which they never said which looks uh, completely convincing um, you know what where could this be in 10 years time if we don't crack down on it now um, which is uh, I think even more concerning than what could it have possibly achieved already. And this is where we kind of see that emergence of not only fake news and, and discrediting, but then the the hate speech that, that does, and oftentimes, and in the context of Libya, um, uh, you know, drives people out of, of the of the space. And and I think what's what's even more worrisome, you know, in, in the context of Libya is that it's so easy to translate what happens on these platforms into into a, you know, reality in a country where there is a breakdown in the rule of law and there's a breakdown in in um, you know there's this prevailing impunity. Yeah, so we know, for example, that the Rwandan genocide happened because of uh, radio incitation. Over the course of the genocide, it was uh, media that uh, was the pro- predominant driver. Um, and to bring this, you know, down to the on the ground level in Libya. Um, you know, there's people who have been driven out of their homes and made uh, internally displaced by fear of approaching military groups. Um, sometimes that fear can be manipulated if there is actually no fighting happening in the area, but there are people who want you to believe that there is, or who want you to believe that, uh, you know, someone's about to come door to door and exterminate people, or your water and electricity are about to be cut off, um, or they want, you know, a certain... Uh, one one military group wants another military group to believe that their enemies are hiding in a civilian neighborhood uh, and therefore maybe you should start you know invading that area or shelling it from afar um, it really does uh, risk life basically it's it's not just posts which um, a lot of the time people don't realize they think oh um, you know it's bad people are lying on the internet what what can you do but it is a matter of life and death sometimes yeah and, and you know you mentioned um instead of setting the scene, which you did so clearly, um, that, you know, one of the tools that's used is targeting of individuals. Um, and we've obviously seen that with human rights defenders and that's across the region. And I'm assuming facilitated by some of the same actors across the region, um, not just in, in Libya. And I remember um, very sort of very early on when we were starting to to really think about this question, um, one of our one of our board members um Poonam Joshi, she she looks and she dedicates her life researching the kind of closing space for civil society. And I remember the minute we we were doing a briefing about the international actors that are coming on the scene in Libya in terms of purely the physical fight. So we were mentioning some of the Gulf states, some of, you know, uh, potentially Turkey at the time. And I remember her reaction was, I'll leave your IHL board members to discuss the impact of that on the ground. My concern is the minute these countries get involved, they also get involved in digital warfare. And that will last for longer and they will be teaching whoever takes over power, how to monitor, how to censor, how to curtail, how to shut down civil society. That's what you should be worried about. Um, And I think that was such a sort of slap to the face wake up call that, you know, she's like some of the world leaders in this field are the Gulf states and we kind of belittle their role so often that we don't credit it enough. Um, And I I think it's, you know, hearing you say that this is so systematic and across the region, you know, it just, yeah, it keeps me just taking me back to that conversation and then looking at it from the perspective of human rights defenders and, and the people, you know, who are our partners and who we work with. Um, 
the damage that that can do to someone is so great and and you know we're, we're trying to do some research on how online violence can sometimes transfer to offline violence and that's the most obvious way that that permeates itself but actually there is you know some thinking um that's being done and we're trying to contribute to it on the idea that the psychological damage that's done by that is so severe that it could amount to torture there's no case law to prove that yet but that's one of the things we're trying to establish is if you can show that the damage that's done is so severe that actually you could take it as a torture case against whoever was facilitating that damage. But then the problem becomes one of evidence. And this is where I come to you because you then have to show that it's a state actor doing this, right? Because the concept of torture is linked to a state actor. Um, and you explained that, you know, you could go behind the scenes of some of these accounts and establish their loyalties to certain states. But how easy is it to establish their ownership or their funding by certain states? Uh, it's very difficult. Um, the smoking gun is normally almost impossible to find. Um, where it is possible, it's often only in the hands of these platforms. So if there is, for example, uh, evidence that all of these accounts are connected to the same IP addresses or being run out of the same location, uh, we don't have access to that, but Facebook or Twitter will. Um, so I think only they could actually uh, provide that smoking gun unless, uh, you know, there's, there's always new advances in open source investigation techniques and maybe uh, some genius out there um, we'll come up with uh, a new way of identifying that the Saudi bots are actually controlled by uh, Mohammed bin Salman or whatever. Um, everything else for us, I think, is just circumstantial. So we can say, for example, they all use exactly the same terminology in such a way that it seems to be directed, or they're all repeating exactly the same phrase, uh, things like that. But that's only circumstantial. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that idea of... Uh, uh, online abuse uh, potentially being uh, classified as amounting to torture, um, especially given we know that it's often gendered as well. Um, and it has this really insidious effect in Libya of uh, driving women off the public sphere entirely. And uh, there's also a really vicious cycle by which, you know, um, countries are made better by ideas and by people implementing those ideas. And when you make it impossible for ideas to be uh, shared and spread, um, you make every potential future slightly worse for that loss of those ideas um, and that slightly worse future will probably be one in which people are even less free to talk and less free to exchange ideas um, which makes things worse again um, and anyone who wants uh, Libya to break out of this cycle of deterioration and fragmentation has to be concerned with um, the ability of people to discuss freely what's happening and decide what to do about it. And I mean, it's 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 great that you picked up on the gender element because actually our project is on online violence against women, but I was trying to use shorthand, but it's very much looking at, at women um, because we, we do find that, you know, the physical space for women doesn't exist in Libya, in Libya anymore. And now the online um, space doesn't exist either. And, and some of the sort of some of the targeting that we've seen women and especially human rights defenders or activists um, receive online anecdotally, which is why we're, we're trying to do the research now, is is really is super gendered and super problematic. But also we've seen it, you know, in, in very obvious cases, we've seen it translated physically, right? So before Salwa Bougagis was assassinated, she was receiving a lot of threats online. And, and people don't put that, they, people don't make that connection that actually that's online violence that's gone offline. And that's a very real threat um, to people. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's it's quite a, it's quite a tricky legal argument to make, but it's it's one that we're trying to sort of innovate on because I think there's real potential there. Um, 
gosh, I feel like we've gone into a, a very, very dark rabbit hole. How do we bring this back to the light, Ahmed? Um, you said a phrase earlier, which I think is at the absolute core, which is think long term. Um, like if I was giving advice to anybody, whether that's uh, governments or NGOs or civil society or individuals uh, who are attempting to deal with this, the absolute core of it is to think long term. Um, because you won't achieve much by putting out fires today, um, but you would be surprised what you can achieve um, by having a small consistent effort long term and looking at where you want the public sphere to be in five years time or a decade's time and taking the steps towards getting it there whether that's for example uh providing training to uh libyan journalists and media outlets uh or giving them support economically um you know uh we have so much media that's citizen supported around the world now and there's all these platforms like patreon in which people can back the things they want to see in the world um and i'm excitedly waiting for the first libyan organization that I see doing that, that I can support on the ground. Um, for example, there's uh, things like um, making it easier for Libyan journalists to authenticate information. Again, so many technologies uh, coming out on that ground. Um, it's not all bad news with technology. Um, there are also so many incredible tools making it easier to uh, geolocate things, to identify whether they really happened, when they happened, how they happened. Um, there's um, an incredible diaspora that we're blessed to have as Libyans um, with so much skill, uh, so much money as well, um, mostly put to negative use at the moment, I have to say. But, um, you know, there's so much potential there. Um, and if we put our minds to it, I really believe um, that there's massive amounts we can do to make it better. So even though I sound like a massive cynic, um, in my daily work, I'm actually quite optimistic. That's good. <laughs> Could you take this optimism and give us something a bit concrete? So what would the recommendations would you um, offer as you know, first steps forward on how to mitigate um, the damage caused by these outlets? Really depends who I'm giving that uh, recommendation to, whether it's uh, someone like yourselves uh, running an NGO or whether it's an, whether it's an ordinary individual. For an ordinary individual, for example, I'd say... Um, be more uncompromising about what you're willing to accept and what you're not um, and say it openly and clearly that, you know, for example, this TV channel uh, promotes uh, regional hatreds and therefore I'm not watching it again and I recommend all my friends to stop watching it because it's not acceptable. Um, and for example, it would be um, uh, a massive thing to see uh, more Western Libyan voices say, you know, this channel promotes hatred of the East and we're not willing to accept that. Or more Eastern voices say, you know, this channel promotes hatred of the West and we don't accept that. Um, or people say, you know, this channel promotes uh, sectarianism uh, or this one promotes uh, misogyny and hatred of women and we do not want to see that and we're not watching it and we're not supporting it. Um, and such un unequivocal statements have an impact both on the channel in question and others to deter the same stuff and a cultural impact, which is what we really need. Um, and I think that shouldn't be underestimated. Do we place the full responsibility on the individuals, right? And then do we say it is you know, your responsibility to, um, to take a stand and boycott or say we will not accept this? Or do we also place equal responsibility on these platforms as well? Individuals definitely don't bear all the responsibility, but um, they're not helpless either, um, which is a good thing. 
these platforms um, do have a responsibility to shape up. Um, some of them are, you know, insulated from that by having wealthy funders who actually want them to be this way, and they exist beyond our reach. Uh, they're not in jurisdictions where we can take legal action, for example. Um, so there's, uh, I don't know, there's, there's maybe examples where websites have been taken off the internet for hate speech in the past, and maybe that could be done with the satellites hosting them. Um, but until then, um, there's also um, opportunities to focus on building better alternatives. So empowering journalists on the ground who actually want to do this for the love of free media and want to report, making it easier for them to do their work, making it safer for them to do their work. That's really, I, mean, I think that's a really good way to start. And, you know, some of the stuff that Falso is doing is, is also about that. And the Libyan Center for Press Freedom, who's, who's doing, I, I think are doing fantastic work on this in the Libyan, in the Libyan context in very, very difficult circumstances. Um, and I think it is, it's so difficult to try to professionalize the sector in this kind of environment with such high emotion. And, um, but I, but I do, I, I do see this incredible effort to, to do that. Um, and I think the rankings they have on the, I, I feel like I'm doing a, a promo for them, but it's really worth going on the, on the false website because they have this brilliant just counter that keeps telling you all the kind of incitement per day from each, each of the, each of the broadcasters. And it's quite powerful to see it in front I'm of you. I'm definitely going to go and look at their website as soon yeah. as we finish. Yeah. Yeah. It just clocks like in real time. <laughs> I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and see if there's a donate button as well. I, I, yeah, they definitely are worth supporting. I think they, I think what they're doing is so innovative. Um, and they have this basically kind of really dedicated team that records news all night and then watches it all day and kind of tallies up all, all the stuff that they see. It's quite something. Um, and it, it kind of is, it's the, it's the very glimmer of, of, of hope that we see. Um, you know, right back at the beginning, when I mentioned where I go to for my news, um, you said, oh, you know, there are some reliable international outlets that are credible and have been around for, for a while. And they're, you know, they're, more or less a reliable source of information. When we started Libya Matters, it was very much as a reaction to how poorly we thought the international media was covering Libya. So we're not natural, as it's probably very evident, <laughs> podcasters or or kind of media types. Um, you know, we're very much activists and lawyers, but we felt that there was such a problem with the narrative that was being put forward on Libya in the international media, that it was lacking in nuance, that it was lat lat lacking in context, that it had, you know, a few prisms in, by which it was always seen migration is one, counterterrorism is the other, and that those together only really serve to um, dehumanize a conflict and militarize the solution to it. And that's exactly what we're seeing on the ground now. And so when we sort of first started thinking about what we could contribute to that, we thought, well, you know what, we actually have quite a good access to people and, and we have time and maybe we have this podcast where we kind of pontificate on what's going on in Libya for as long as we need and and fill that gap. And I don't profess that we're doing that. It's, it's an aspiration still. But I, but I guess my question is, you know, are we letting the international media off lightly by saying, okay, they're not doing a great job. It's a simple narrative. We'll try to fill the gap where we can, as opposed to pushing them to do a better job. Or is there something, what role are they playing in the Libya conflict? And here I'm not really thinking of international media as in the regional. I'm thinking of the credible, quote unquote, international media um, in Western capitals. Yeah, I think um, Libya always... Um falls between the cracks with international media. Uh, it very rarely has someone focused on it. And uh, when you go to most outlets which are non-specialized, the article on Libya, uh, whatever crisis of the month it is, will be mostly boilerplate. You know, the first paragraph will be, um, uh, you know, this city was shelled or this oil installation was cut off or whatever happened. Then it'll go into the boilerplate of uh, a paragraph about since 2011, uh, and the toppling of the dictator of 42 years, Muammar Gaddafi, 
um, and then it'll have a paragraph on the chaos that has ensued, and then it will have a paragraph about you know whatever the last uh, international conference aimed at solving it was. They all read exactly the same. It's like reading that, the same article every week. <laughs> um, but um, I do somewhat sympathize um, because sources are often hard to find, especially if you're a non-Arabic speaking journalist. Um, they're expected to cover many of these countries at the same time. Uh, they don't know where to get their information from. They go on social media and just immediately are hit by a flood of disinformation. So I do see that what you guys are doing is an incredible service to them. You're making uh, information available. Um, you're hosting nuanced discussions, and I definitely think that's part of the solution. Um, I also think that it's important to call out bad coverage when it happens, and I do. It's a guilty pleasure of mine to go on Twitter and see uh, when you know all the Libya experts are dunking on the latest piece of really bad journalism. Yeah, it, we 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 have to get our uh, our kicks where we can get them, Ahmed, in these times. Um, and maybe um, maybe we'll we'll ask you sort of a cheeky question that we asked ourselves at the beginning. Where do you get your news? Um, I have a bit of a phobia of uh, relying too much on one source, and I've been trying really hard to get away from that. Um, I do use Twitter uh, very heavily, um, but I curate heavily as well. So I have lists um, of uh, different accounts. I have lists of uh, journalists who I respect and trust. I have lists of Libyans on the ground. Um, I try and compare between different pieces of coverage as well, different outlets, and see what the differences are and why they're reporting things differently. Um, uh, I don't always get it right, but I do my best to be a, a critical consumer of information. I feel I feel better now. Do you feel better, Marwa? I do. He I goes do. to Twitter too. <laughs> <laughs> um, that could have ended very, very badly. Um, is there a question, Ahmed, that you wanted us to ask you that we didn't? Uh, there isn't. No, I think we've been through so much, um, and any any piece of the discussion that we've just had could be, you know, opened up and dissected even further. And there's so many rabbit holes. Oh, yes. Is there a question that you want to ask us that we didn't give you the opportunity to do? Oh, Marwa, this is a novelty. I'm not comfortable. <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, we can always edit this, this out, right? <laughs> at the risk of extending the recording by another 45 minutes. Um, Actually, actually, maybe there is. So how has uh, disinformation affected your work? Uh, Amara, are you going to pick it up? Right? <laughs> no, you open this, open this rabbit hole. So I, I think that's a, really, um, that's a really good point because we get so much slack for appearing slow in responding to things or events on the ground or not reacting or, or being cautious in our statements. Um, and that's because our statements... Um, are, are demanding legal results or they're demanding sort of, you know, very kind of judicial proceedings or processes. Um, we have a very s sort of a very tight mandate, which is about pursuing legal accountability and justice. And so as much as I would love to go in there and jump on every bit of information I get and rant about how unacceptable it is, I can't action it as an organization. And so I think, you know, we get so much information that we have to say, OK, well, we can't react to that until we verify it with our contacts on the ground, our network. Um, checking the sources, checking the legality. And actually, by the time we're ever in a position to write a statement, it's like too late to react to that in a lot of people's eyes. And we're seen as, you know, not really part of the cause. Yeah. And I think that is if there's one thing that's a frustration in doing the kind of work we do is that it's so by necessity and by caution and by professionalism is slow. 
right? Legal, legal processes and analyses and proper verification takes time. But in the speed that the things happen on the ground and the speed that people consume social media, it, I think sometimes and oftentimes unfavorably reflects on us because it looks like we are not responding and not showing sufficient empathy with what's happening on the ground. Um, and I think that's kind of a balance that we need to get better at to have more quick responses, but also take our time to do the legal analysis. And it's a, tr it's a tricky balance. And I think I try to, in my Twitter land, um, to separate my personal reactions from, from my personal account where I can be a bit more immediate in my take on something. And then the LFJL account would come out with a more reasoned, structured response to an issue. But yeah, I think that's probably our number one criticism is that we're slow. And actually, it's not because we haven't picked up on the news. It's because we need to establish that the disinformation is what it is and this was correct. And if, if we can verify it, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Um, but I think also um, having the podcast has been a great development for LFJL um, because uh, with a lot of NGOs, they seem a bit opaque from the outside. Like you don't know what's going on. What are they really working on? What are they thinking about this right now? You often don't get to see the results until the end of a long project. Um, I really enjoyed your first season and I felt like there was, uh, there was much more immediacy to understanding what you were thinking about certain events and how you were thinking about them and how you were reacting. Um, so as well as, um, providing, you know, uh, help to the Libyan media landscape by hosting nuanced and safe discussions, I think it's also a really great thing for your organization in dealing with that. So what I'm basically trying to say is I love the podcast. So we have a section at the end where we try to get you to say that, like pull it out of you to use it for our promos. <laughs> Marwa, it sounded like you wanted to add something. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of add a little um, one extra point to that is, is, you know, yes, it is, you know, our work, we're not a media agency, right? And, and so we always kind of have this, this internal struggle as well is that, yes, we do need to react and we react not because we're breaking news, but because we need to put our position as an organization out there. And I think, and I'm going to, you know, I'm absolutely taking the role of, of head of advocacy here to say that, um, that we, our positions are, um, are public, we, pu we publish our positions and so we, we react so that is out there. But we also do um, have to take the time to, to carry out the, the proper documentation, the fact checking, the making sure uh, that everything that, that we compile is, is factually correct. And, and that takes time. So uh, while, you know, even internally in that process, we're often, you know, trying to push ourselves because it's, you know, we're under, you know, this time constraints, but then we need to take, we also take a step back and say, okay, we're not breaking the news. We're not a news agency. We will put that out there when we get our facts in, uh, correct. So. so have you, like almost every other Libyan in public life been subjected to smears or, you know, coordinated campaigns <laughs> attacking you or anything like oh, that? Oh, yes. We're learning to accept them as badges of honor. Um, and I have been liberated by the fact that it's okay to block people. Um, and that has been the biggest gift that has been given to me. Um, and I will attribute it to Tarek, who is my husband. And, and he keeps just saying, just block. You know, you're not there to be someone's therapist and to listen to their views. And you're not impeding on someone's freedom. Because my position was, I don't want to hinder someone's freedom of expression. He's like, that person's not going to stop expressing. Let them express. You just don't have to hear it. And I went, oh, oh gosh, yeah. I had never thought of it that way. And so it was, it was probably um, the most liberating moment to just block um and now i'm kind of not contaminated by it block is your friend <laughs> hi i'm tim molyneux and i work on strategic communications 
In this LFJL Explains, I'm going to talk about why free media is important for accountability. Firstly, everyone has the right to freedom of expression, but that right isn't totally unlimited. Restrictions can be imposed in very narrow circumstances, for example, to counter hate speech. However, governments often use vague and overly broad laws to target anyone they disagree with. In the media, on one hand, the internet has given us greater access to information than ever, and on the other, we're bombarded by fake news, threats, misinformation, bots, and all kinds of toxic content, which is something we also see in Libya. Because of that, some have called for greater media regulation, but that's risky because if it's too restrictive, it can make it really difficult for journalists to do their work. And increasingly, laws are being passed around the world that governments say are supposed to combat things like fake news, but in fact are used to target critics and silence dissent. And once those laws are on the books, they can be difficult to remove. This is important for accountability because the media is vital for exposing human rights violations, corruption and other issues that have a broader impact on all of us. During an armed conflict, getting reliable information about the human rights situation is really difficult and the information that journalists gather can become valuable to lawyers later as they build cases to prosecute people who have allegedly committed crimes. For example, a British journalist called Sayi Rhodes, who covered the war in Côte d'Ivoire, later gave evidence in a trial at the International Criminal Court related to crimes against humanity charges. Of course, prosecutors conduct extensive investigations and consider a wide range of evidence, but media reports can be an important part of the story. Now we get, now let's sit up, get some energy, Ahmed, and we're doing the debunking the narrative section. Are you ready for this? Here we go. Statement one. I'm ready. Everyone lives in their silos, so disinformation is not really that harmful. We don't live in our silos. We interact with each other through our daily lives, through the institutions that we work in, uh, through our professional lives, through our family lives. Um, and the things we can believe can lead us to act in ways which are harmful to others. All right, next. We live in a post-truth, post-news era. Oh my God, where to even start? Uh, I've always read the term post-truth as meaning people don't care about truth rather than truth not existing. Um, you can't really live your life acting as though truth doesn't exist. You'll just be hit by the next car. Um, so I, don't know what, I don't know what more to say about that. Power, it's a powerful visual you paint. Can, can I add something on this one? Because um, my daughter, who's, who's going to be five next month, watches this show um, on CBBS, which is brilliant. It's this show where, which it has this character who, ex who tries to explain big concepts like, you know, fairness or jealousy or like, you know, really, really big concepts for children. And just last week, this character is, was explaining truth. Um, and there's this brilliant because you have he has all these interactions and, you know, he has to decide what's truth and what's not in various ones. And there is one moment where he just turns to the other character and says, just because you believe it, it doesn't make it true. And I just thought, oh, my God, that should just be like the motto for so much. And I'm I'm like, I don't care if I'm quoting a children's show, but I am going to be quoting this statement for so long because it just was so beautifully succinct. And it was an aha moment for my daughter, but it was also very much an, like a, a light bulb for me as well. Um it's it's I have I can't remember what it's called, but it's absolutely genius, and it, it's it's removed a lot of difficult conversations for me. I have to say, of like trying to explain what you know what's fairness and what's truth. Um, okay, here's the last sentence. Um, we need more regulation of media. We have a lot of regulation of media already, and most of it isn't even active. Um, and what is active of it is doing harm. We need the right regulation of media rather than more regulation. Is there a narrative you want to debunk? Uh, I think you've done so many of them um, in the last season. The one that really makes my blood boil, uh, I think you already mentioned it, is the tribes. Uh, every time someone mentions the Libyan tribes, 
Uh, I just think, how did you persuade someone to hire you? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yes, there is a lot of moments I have that um, feeling about a lot of people's statements, but let's not go down a, another rabbit hole of, of darkness. Uh, thank you so much, Ahmed. It's been really great to have you with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is produced by Lawyers for Justice in Libya. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Libyan Justice. This season of Libya Matters was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi, Marwa Mohammed, and Mohammed Al-Misiri. It is produced by Tariq Al-Miri. The people who put season two of Libya Matters together are Finbar Anderson, Zaira Edwards, Mayad Al-Makki, Mohammed Al-Misiri, Elise Fletcher, Nada Kiswanson, Marwa Mohammed, Tim Malyanu, and me, Ilham Saudi. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS. Mm-hmm.